Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Here is part two of my conversation with Pam. I know that the people who heard the first part are very moved by her story. Everyone who hears her story is actually very moved by her story. And one of the things that happens when people hear a story like this, when they're not familiar with the group itself that you're dealing with or that she was dealing with, people can say, how does this happen? Why is it that people don't stop these things? Why is it that people just don't know? How do they get away with it? You can ask this question of many different situations, many different cultic groups, many of these residential, awful teen treatment centers, and I use treatment with air quotes around it, and things that just happen under our noses, and police brutality, and, and, and. There's just so much, there's too much that people get away with, and that's why it's so important for people to finally be telling their stories. So here is part two again of Pam's story where she continues where she left off and you get to hear how things go from bad to worse and then better. So here is Pam's bio, her intro. She writes, Narconon, fueled or fooled. In the late 1970s, While Pam was in college, she got involved with Scientology doing many courses and counseling with them. She stayed in Scientology a long time, but around 2001, Pam was in a terrible accident where she broke her neck, throwing her into the medical world of surgeries, medicines, doctors, etc. During her recovery, Pam wanted off the medicines, so she got involved with Scientology's form of drug rehab called Narconon. Actually, if you want to refer back to previous episodes with Lucas Catton, you'll also hear about Narconon. Not knowing what to expect, she first went to their facility in the Los Angeles area, which turned out to be a three-month nightmare, as she puts it. So, they flew her to Montreal, Canada, to a sister Narconon for many months. Pam desperately hoped they would keep their promises to her to help her, but this didn't happen. These unbelievable experiences badly affected both her mental and physical health. And at one point, she was down to 84 pounds. Yep, you heard it right, 84 pounds, often having continuous seizures with no one qualified to watch over her finding herself staying alone eventually in an old Canadian farmhouse for months with little food, medical care, or even a phone. She felt like a prisoner, jailed in a foreign country, not knowing anyone or even able to speak the language. What could she do? This is her grueling story about how it all happened. Narconon's lack of any help whatsoever and how she managed to escape back to her parents in the United States, where her years of recovery began. It really is something that she is lucky to have lived through. 
And there were many points in her story where you wonder how it is possible that she survived. And it is a true testament, really, to the ability of the body or the mind or sometimes just luck that someone survives things like this. I can't quite imagine what she went through. And I think for some people who have let me know that they'd like to tell their stories on this podcast, but are feeling a little worried that their stories are not as dramatic as some others and they weren't having near-death experiences and they weren't held prisoner, not to worry. Because while those are tremendously awful details, the themes are universal. The theme of being promised something and really all along being deceived, the promise of health, well-being, being cured, getting relief, and all the while being deceived and waiting and hoping and sometimes wishing to be rescued. These are things that I hear from everyone in so many different situations. So Pam, thank you for sharing what you shared with us last week and what you will be continuing to share with us today. Here's Pam now. So I have two things. First of all, a statement. The other is a question before you continue. The statement is that as you're starting to tell this part of the story, it's like, you know, when you're watching a horror movie and you hear the sound, like the music starts to get dark and you hear screeching violins and this foreshadowing of having that sinking feeling, right? But also these people who take the medicine out of your hand, do any of them have medical degrees? No. Okay. Do any of them have psychiatry background? Oh, God, no. No, and I I will get to that in a moment, but it's a good question. So what happened was while I was in this room, I started to seizure because they, nocturnal seizures, and it, their solution to anything I was going through was to walk it off. Sometimes it would be 15 miles and 15 miles back down the sand, which is kind of hard to walk on anyway, but the the, the sound of the ocean was supposed to um, calm you down, walking, no matter what time of the day this was. And I had already been diagnosed with sleep um, deprivation and severe weight loss because of the, when you have that metal thing around you, you, you're eating with a feeding tube and I was allergic to the dairy in it. So I had to, I had to yank the feeding tube out myself because they wouldn't take it out. And my weight at this point was like 84 pounds. And I'm pretty thin anyway. So I will say though, while I did not feel like eating at all because they had really good food. They had a chef and they had good food for the other people. But I see, I have a lot of food allergies and I'm uh, gluten intolerant. And 
And so there was a, a really nice one of the students there who somehow also was. And so he shared some of his food with me, like nut milk and nut butter and a gluten-free bread. And so basically I, I, I was living off of that while everyone else was even having steak and potatoes and, and vegetables. And so I, I was stuck in this little room having seizures. The anxiety was so high. My whole body was shaking. I couldn't stop it. And they weren't checking on me. And I was thinking this was so weird, except when I would on my own walk out into the reception area and say, I want to go for a walk. And because that was the only thing I could really control, even though I didn't want to, because I knew it literally it was going to be between five or 10 or 15 miles, one way and back. And because I wasn't sleeping, it was usually during the night. And so after being there in this room for like a month, and really you're only supposed to be there for a week, they said if if I would eat more, they would reward me with two things. I could go into the water because it was a public, Newport Beach is public. And the warm water really did calm me down from the anxiety. And if I ate something, they would give me five minutes of sauna time before bed in hopes that that would relax me and I would fall asleep. It didn't. It, it, it didn't. Because part of their program is, is using uh, a sauna to release the drugs out of your system. A lot of programs use that. They seem to claim it as they discovered it, but I now know that's not true. But they, they would give me five minutes. Um, but I was still seizuring. I was, I was still seizuring. And I found out way later after this was all over, when I went to a neuropsychologist, he found I was seizuring 150 times a night. And I, of course, I didn't know that. I, I didn't know that. And, and that it was causing the anxiety in the next morning and the headaches. And I was getting tired of this, as you can well imagine. So I demanded that I see a doctor. I mean, I went to the executive director who I would, I, I knew it was him because you never saw him but you always heard him yelling at people in the bathroom, at the staff members. He was, he, I mean, it, just like viciously yelling at the staff members for silly things, stupid things. I just couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe it. So I told him that I absolutely, if, if you want me out of this room, you're going to have to take me to a doctor. So what he did was he took me to Ron's. L. Ron Hubbard's doctor, Dr. Dank, and uh, in Los Angeles, and he said, "Your this is my evaluation. Your nervous system is fried. That's what he diagnosed me with. You need to get some sleep. You also have sleep deprivation." And he's a real doctor. I mean, a, you know, a real doctor. And um, he gave me something called hydrochlorate. I think that's what it was called. 
It was a medicine and it was a very light medicine to help me sleep. And oh God, I'll, I'll never forget this. The, the minute, I mean, the minute I walked back in to the facility, I was physically taken into the executive director's office and he said, you can't stay here anymore. And I said, what? And he said, you have a decision to make. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I can't have you here while you're taking that medicine. I said, but you you just sent me to this doctor. It's who you wanted me to go see. And I'm just following his directions. He said, doesn't matter. You have to leave. And I said, where am I going to go? And he said, well, you, these are your choices. I will give you one phone call. You can call your parents or a friend or whatever, and you can either go home or you can go to your parents. Because meanwhile, my parents had been told that I was doing well. I was going to ask, yeah, how, what they were being told and if you were able to be in touch with them. And no one is allowed to call. And this is where it gets interesting. He told them I was working the program. And so he said, or this is where it gets interesting. You can go to our sister facility in Montreal, Canada. They made it sound like this was God's heaven. They made it sound like so wonderful. The rules are different in Canada, so I would be able to take the medicine there. They said that I would be in my own room and they would be taking much better care of me because Newport Beach was also moving. I found this out later that they were also moving. And so they really didn't have room for me. So all I wanted was office medicine and to not feel so bad. And the way and they made it sound like this would happen. So at, like an idiot, I went to Montreal, Canada. And the interesting thing is, while I was talking to the executive director, 911 happened, 9-11. And everyone in the whole place was freaking out naturally, crying, screaming, I was in the office, so I didn't know what was wrong. And he said, okay, you're leaving tomorrow. I said, okay, kind of hesitantly, I guess I'll go to, um, and I had called my mom and dad and they said, you do whatever you think you need to do. Because we had a, I was raised with wonderful parents and they were very worried about me. I thought, well, now what's going to happen? And you won't believe it, but seriously, they took me to the airport the day after 9-1-1 happened. And I didn't know that was possible. Everything was shut down. There were guards with guns I had never seen before. Everywhere, I was like the only one passenger in the airport. And we realized I didn't have a passport. And I don't know how they did it. I still, to this day, do not know how they got me a passport to go to Canada, but they did. That's it. Okay. 
It's incredible. First of all, 9-11, yes, it just knocked everyone to their knees. And almost no one would want to be on a plane the day after or even the week after, uh, especially with having the visuals, the trauma, the, the just the fear. They hadn't caught the people yet who had done it. So you're just in as much danger. And and getting someone a passport to get out of the country then, unheard of. There's only, the only way to do it is if you have connections. At the time, I, I wasn't even thinking along those lines because I was scared. I was really scared. They found me a plane to Ontario, not Montreal, but to Ontario. And I remember um, I was just, so, so, so very scared. It took about eight hours at the airport to get this passport, but they did it. And a gentleman met me at the airport. Very, very nice gentleman in Ontario. He took me to a gorgeous hotel, asked me what I wanted. I said Chinese food. He got me Chinese food. I had my own room. I was starting to think, oh, maybe this isn't going to be so bad. And then the next day, my nightmare, my hellish nightmare began. We had to drive from Ontario to Montreal. He didn't let me stop for water, for food, to go to the bathroom. He just told me to lay in the back and lay down. And that's a long ways. It's a very long ways. And I was still seizuring at night and not sleeping. And my body was just emaciated. I mean, literally, I was probably down to like, I don't know, 75, 80 pounds. It was bad. 75 to 80 pounds? Yeah, it was. People thought I was anorexic, but I, I wasn't. I wasn't. It was just the stress was unbelievable. It was just so unbelievable. I mean, I, I think about just how many signs there were that you were in trouble and that you needed hospitalization and you needed real medical care. Just the seizures alone. I mean, I, I know someone, a friend of mine who has a seizure disorder, she cannot go in a sauna. She can't go in a hot tub. It actually causes her, her to have more seizures, having an elevated body temperature. And I don't know if that is true of all seizures, but I know she has to be careful, even if she gets a fever. And so the fact that they would tell you to, I mean, again, different, there's different kinds of seizure disorder. So I'm not saying this that I know for sure about yours, but still that's playing with fire and could have also caused more. But also that that is something that you get treated for. I mean, because you as you know, you could have died many times over, right? Like this could have, not that people can die many times over, but earlier on in the story, there are many uh, quote unquote opportunities for lack of a better word for you to not be around anymore. And also just being 75 to 80 pounds. I mean, it is so dangerous. It's so dangerous. And people taking care of you would say, we really need to bring you to a hospital like right away. You need to have nourishment. Yes. I totally agree with you. My head was also very messed up at the time. So we drove to downtown Montreal. And what I found out was that, yes, 
they did have a new facility, but it was full. And they were still moving people from the old facility to the new facility. They had no room for me. So you just flew from California to the eastern side of Canada. Where they all speak French. (laughs) And they didn't check to make sure there was a bed available or a room available for you first? They told me they did. I understand some French because I, I took four years of it in school. And some people spoke broken English, broken French. The executive director was there. He he was and I he was a lot nicer than the one down at Newport Beach. And he said, This is what we're gonna do uh, until we can find you a bed. I'm going to take you to my parents. They have a, a second home. It's on uh, it's a hundred acres, it's on an orchard. And here again, he's, you know, there, there's fruit trees. Uh, it's beautiful. And we'll always make sure we have someone there to cook for you and on and blah, 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 blah. So I just kind of went with it. I truly felt kidnapped to this day. I truly felt kidnapped because he took me to it, they, they, it must have been at least oh, 75 or 100 years old. It was a rundown home, truly on a lot of property. So no one was around, which I was kind of used to. But, and it did have an orchard. There was no food in the house. He told me that there was a, a meat locker somewhere around and that they would bring someone over to help me in a couple days and there was an orchard and it did have fruit and he said you can just eat off the fruit as much as you want and he said feel free to walk around the property as much as you want so here I was stuck in a foreign country with nobody around me no, no one to help me no food I remember it was filthy. It was filth. There were flies everywhere. The bedroom was upstairs. I tried taking the the sleep medicine. Didn't work. Didn't work at all. And the TV got one blurry channel and I was all alone and no phone, nothing, nothing. I was trapped. And did they take your passport from you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I figured. Oh, yeah. But it wouldn't have mattered because I didn't know to walk up to someone. I mean, it was really French. And and I I wouldn't know what what to even say or how I didn't speak French that well. And so in a couple days, a 17 year old student came over who was supposed to watch me. But all he did was talk to his girlfriend on the phone and didn't cook for me, would not let me use his phone. And I I was eating the fruit, never found the meat locker, still was having what they're called, they're called nocturnal seizures, and didn't have any, any medicine. I don't know where my medicine went, the heart medicine that they were giving me off and on at Newport Beach. So the anxiety was extremely high, truly 
this went on for uh, maybe a month. I was there and I, for some reason, I accepted it as normal. I, I don't, I don't know why, but I, I was, I just, I, I did not feel like eating. And so I guess the, you know, the fruit was, seemed to be enough for me. And then all, all of a sudden, out of the blue, one day, a van pulls up with a bunch of other students who were going through the program. And they said, we have to take you to, uh, we're all going to a naturopath, a Scientology naturopath, because technically they have to do the same thing that the United States requires, that you have to see some kind of doctor. But it should have been done like the day of. And I thought, oh, good, someone I can talk to, someone I can tell to get me the hell out of here. And unfortunately, he didn't speak any English. So there was a translator. And this was a very long drive. It must have been like a 10-hour drive. It was, I don't know where we went. No stops for water. No stops for food. And when we went there, he gave me some uh, holistic medicine that was supposed to help me with sleep because he could tell that I was just emaciated and, and, and his wife owned a grocery store that had, it was like a, what would you call it? It was like a, a holistic grocery store. And so they had the kind of food that I could eat there. And, and on the way home, they allowed me to stop, go in, pick up some nut milk, nut butter, gluten-free bread and some other food. But Rachel, when I brought that food into the van, all of these eyes were staring at it like, cause we hadn't eaten in, in like eight to 10 hours. And, and I felt bad. So I pretty much gave away all my food because I felt so bad for these people. And I, I kept a little bit of it for me, but not much. And so when we finally got back, I told the 17-year-old boy, I, I got just outright hysterical. I was hysterical. I knew if I got that way that he would call someone. So I, I, I manipulated him. And he did call the executive director whose parents' home I was at. So he came out and he told me to write down everything that I felt was wrong, that I needed fixed. So I did. And he went over about half of them with me. And he said, okay, I'm bringing my parents over next uh, week, weekend, and they will cook for you and they will freeze food for you. And then I kept asking, when can I go to the new facility? When is that going to be ready for me? He said, there's no room. This is where you're going to stay. And I said, yes, but for how long? And when do I get to start the program? And none of those questions were answered. You know, he, he said he'd send over someone to clean the house and that never happened. And he said he would bring some, get some meat for me from the meat locker. That never happened. How many times also since you, we've begun having this conversation that you've 
said, they said this, and that wasn't true. They said this, that never happened. They promised me this, that never came true. It is so hard when you are in such a vulnerable state, you're in such a compromised state. Also just eating all that fruit, you have no protein, there's nothing to feed your brain. So you're just going on sugar. And so you're going to have these highs and lows. And that's not enough to help you focus and to help you sleep and to, and you're not having your seizures dealt with and you're so thin and your body's just trying, probably eating itself at this point and just being promised things and reassured and no one is meaning anything that they're saying. Well, I finally figured that, that out. And the one thing that I have to say that did say literally save my life, they allowed a female, I had asked for a female person, student to come out. And after speaking with her for hours and hours and going on many walks with her, she could see that this was not right for me. She broke the rules and let me use her phone. And I called my parents. My first thing my dad said, you know, I'm going to sue the, the, the blankety blank. And so she managed to get me back to Montreal to a travel agency and managed to get me a plane ticket. The executive director found out about it and was furious. He, but he promised me, he promised if I stayed that he would pay for more auditing for me if I stayed. And at that point I was like, Heck no, I just need to get the, I need out of here because you have to realize this was three months later. I had been there for three months. I had walked so long. I had walked to New York. I found a marker that said, welcome to New York in the middle of nowhere. It was bad. I was in bad shape. When I got to my parents in Nevada, my mom took one look at me and dropped down to the floor and just started bawling. And they raced me to the hospital, uh, literally, where I, I was there for about a week and a half. They put me back on some of the medicine so I could be taken off in the right manner. They sent me to a wonderful psychologist, wonderful. And I spent eight months living with my parents until I had gained weight. They lived um, next to a country club. So I got to use that uh, swimming and, and um, to try and get some of myself back. But actually eight months wasn't long enough because I came back and, oh, and my dad was running my business from afar to keep it going, bless his heart. But eight months wasn't long enough. 20 years hasn't been long enough. Even talking to you right now, I can feel the PTSD coming back. I hear it's good to talk about, and it's been a long time, but it still comes back. I spoke about Scientology at the beginning just to frame things, but really my horrible experiences were with Narconon that was run by Scientology if that makes sense. I did manage to recover. And then three years later, I was in a motorcycle accident where I had to have 18 surgeries. It was really bad. 
um, with my new husband who did not leave me, who stayed with me. You know, he wasn't a Scientologist. He's a wonderful man. And my point is, is that those kind of things are so bad and so wrong that I don't know if they can ever truly be dealt with or leave you. Part of me does blame Scientology because it was run. Everybody there was Scientologists, all the staff, but Narconon was horrible. It was horrific. And, you know, I've been asked to write books, a, a book about it. And I, I just, I don't think I could, I can't because there's so much more detail I've left out naturally due to time. So many horrible things that happened and it's just really wrong. So wrong. I think, um, I do hope that you are getting help when needed for the PTSD. I mean, I think just even being in the accidents that you've been in, that's sometimes enough to create post-traumatic stress. Then I think, and I'm very sorry to hear about the motorcycle accident, uh, uh, and the 18 surgeries after, uh, horrible and long and protracted and painful but also how healing to have it handled in the way, and I don't mean handled in a Scientology way, but handled, <laughs> that's <laughs> what I went to. Right, yeah. right. To have it, to have it uh, responded to, I'll change my language, in a way that is in your best care and best interest and best medical practice with surgeons, with uh, medical oversight with a partner who is there with you, with not having to be isolated and having nobody to talk to, having your medications taken away from you. I mean, just having it follow a logical, good sequence after you've been in an accident just also, I think, highlights how awful it was and how how frightening it was, but also how lucky you are to be alive. And I just think about, you know, the long nights you had in isolation with your seizures. I mean, that, you know, that uh, I really feel for you. And I, I, you're a very strong person that you, you've come through that. Um, it's, like, it's like being a POW. You were emaciated and kept away from communication from anyone and fending for yourself. Yeah, it was bad. Thank you for saying that, but I don't see myself as that because I was left with a lot of medical PTSD, a lot. I, I've been diagnosed with it. So that every time I have to go to the doctor, it's, it's not a good thing. And there's still a lot of physical scars that are left from, from all those experiences and mental. Yeah, but I, I, I just want everyone to know I'm, I'm not a Scientologist anymore. <laughs> No way. Yeah. Yeah. No, no way. And I truly hope that if they are monitoring you or following you, that I am not harassed because I have friends that have been mm -hmm. pretty badly. And I hope that, that I, that was the, the real reason why I left so quietly and never really told my story but I just felt it was time now, but I, I really don't want to, I don't, yeah, cause I'm getting older. So I, I just really hope that I am not 
legally harassed or physically harassed or that's why I am saying this publicly in, in case that happens. And so I will say publicly in response to that, that first of all, it's very sad that people who are former Scientologists have to worry about that. And I can't tell you how many people have contacted me to tell me they wish they could tell their story, but they're too worried about what's going to happen to them if they do. And that is so wrong. And it's so wrong, especially for an organization that gets tax-exempt status for being a church. So what I think is important, though, for you to know is that you have the right, and legally, you have the right to tell your story. It is your story. It's not hearsay. It's not considered to, to the, the legal definition of slander and libel. You're saying, this is what happened to me. I was in these places. This is what was told to me. This is what happened to me. And you are narrating your story. And so... I think, you know, it is, it's good for people to know that, that even if you were harassed, they wouldn't be able to kind of have a leg to stand on. The people who have talked about their experiences on the show have not been harassed because of it, because my, my intention is not to defame a particular group. My intention is to give people a forum to say, this is what happened to me. And it's a forum also to show how you can be indoctrinated, how you can be in a system that has so become kind of the puppet master of your mind that then you don't act on your own behalf or you're limited from being able to do it. And the system around you kind of keeps you from being able to act on your own behalf. That's really, you know, and then how to break free and how to get past it. That's the point of the show. So I, do really appreciate you taking the time to to tell your story. And I do hope that you're able to kind of take good care of yourself, even going to the doctor, being able to also say to a doctor or nurse, even a receptionist, I'm freaking out now just by being here. Oh, this is I do. do. Okay, good. This is what I need. I need for you to say the following things, not say the following things, do this, don't touch, don't, you know, and really come in with saying what it is that's going to help you feel safe and comfortable. I think people don't necessarily know that they can do that, but they can. I have people coming into my office who have been held against their will not by therapists, but by wherever they were before. And they were put in locked war rooms or locked wards or locked whatever. And so they'll say, I want to talk to you, but can you leave your door open while we're talking? And can I check to make sure there's no lock on your door? And there is no lock on my door <laughs> on purpose also because, mm -mm. but you know, these kinds of situations, I think it's really good for people to learn to advocate for themselves as much as possible and say, this is what I need. And this is what's going to make me feel safe. And then if you have the professionals in your life who then listen to it and they follow suit and they say, sure, if that makes you feel more comfortable, I'd be happy to do that. Then they're safe to be with. And so I hope that you're able to have those conversations. It sounds like you do. And you let people know what you're experiencing and feeling so they can respond to it. And moving forward, I hope that your life is just filled with more healing 
and no more trauma. You've had a lifetime of it, but just to have the wherewithal to tell your story and also suffering from PTSD does not mean that you're not strong. Thank you. Because what it means is that you've been through experiences that are beyond the norm, that are beyond what you would expect and what you are emotionally geared for in your life. When you're growing up, you're not expecting to go through these experiences. You haven't had training to deal with them. They haven't happened to you multiple times before. So you've learned how to manage them. It's, it's like being hit broadside. It's like being in a car wreck. You could be a very strong person, but then not want to get into a car for a long time after that. So trauma is different than strength. And it just shows if you are a strong person and you're still having the after effects and, and the post-traumatic stress, it just shows how severe the trauma was, how much it was, and also how recurrent it was. Because it's hard when you go from trauma to trauma to trauma, because you're still trying to stand back up when you get knocked back down. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that would do almost anyone in. But it, I, I love, though, that you're able to enjoy your life now and have people in it also who you trust and who know you for who you are and treat you respectfully and kindly. And you deserve that and more. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thanks for making this so comfortable for me to talk about. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time. And I know it's hard to, to dredge. But thank you. And all the, the listeners, I'm sure you're, you'll get a lot of feedback and a lot of positive feedback, which I will be sure to pass along to you. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Sure. You're welcome. Great getting to know you. And I wish you well. And if there's anything else that you wanted to, to talk about, just be in touch. Okay. Take care. Okay. You too. One more thing before you go. I am so moved by Pam's story. You also know that with all of the details she shared, there's so much more. Because she had to condense it into somehow, I don't know how she did it, into just two episodes of this podcast. So I know that of the things that she shared, they were narrowed down to be specific for this audience, but also were part of formulating the experiences she had not only then, but the trauma that she experienced after, not only the physical trauma she had been through over and over, but the psychological trauma and the neglect medical and psychological. There's also something just about being trapped that will do a number on you where you just don't feel like you have a choice. That here you're malnourished or you're in pain and the things that you're promised over and over just are not materializing. So people feel that they can just lie to you with abandon over and over to get you to feel excited about finally getting relief and then just not only disappoint you, but devastate you and betray you in the process repeatedly. The thing that she is inevitably going to be struggling with 
as most people who have been through this, is the symptom picture involved with post-traumatic stress. Actually, probably complex PTSD, CPTSD. Many people with CPTSD don't realize why it is that they're having so many symptoms. And it's often because of the complex nature of it, meaning that it wasn't just from one event. It was from multiple events. And so when we talk about post-traumatic stress, and I'm not in a position to officially diagnose Pam, but we can assume there are a lot of symptoms that we're talking about. First, if you have interest in learning about post-traumatic stress disorder, now post-traumatic stress syndrome is often what it goes by. You can read so many books. There are some guidebooks and source books and workbooks and a lot of somatic therapies that are helpful, like some forms of EMDR and other mm, kind of non-just talking-based therapies. But if you read any of the research by people like Bessel van der Kolk, where you can read his book, The Body Keeps the Score, or just go onto his sites and watch his videos, he's really spent the better part of his life as a psychiatrist and an author and researcher and educator researching and talking about post-traumatic stress. One of the things that's very difficult for people is when they have something happen to them that is beyond what is typical to experience in your life. Not everyone who experiences something difficult has post-traumatic stress. Sometimes it has to do with the severity of what happened to you, and sometimes it has to do with your wiring. And if you are sensitive and sensitized to some of the trauma, some of the events in ways that other people might not. But people will sometimes have PTSD symptoms after an assault or sexual assault, after having experienced wartime, serious car accidents, child abuse, threats, stalking, People also can get post-traumatic stress after witnessing something. People who have observed something awful happening in front of them, someone being killed, someone being abused. People who I've worked with who have left some very bad situations have post-traumatic stress symptoms because they were kept from being able to protect a person they wanted to or they needed to. And so that was traumatic for them, that they couldn't save a person they cared about because the person in charge, the abuser in charge, the leader in charge would keep them from interfering, from getting involved, from jumping in to rescue. Unfortunately, though, for a lot of people who have left cultic situations and also abusive relationships, they will see their post-traumatic stress symptoms as a weakness, 
And somehow, as Pam also talked about, that it would somehow show her to not be strong, to not be capable of withstanding what happened to her. If you can, please give yourself permission. If you're experiencing these sorts of things, these symptoms where not only are you potentially having nightmares or night sweats, you're having a reactive uh, and heightened reactive response to certain noises, to certain sights, to certain smells even, to anything that reminds you of a traumatic event. If you find that your heart is racing, that you break into a sweat, where you have this release suddenly of adrenaline, where you have a panic attack, where you find yourself jumping under your desk when you hear a car going by and you hear screeching brakes because it reminds you of something else or a horrible car accident you were in. That is not a sign of weakness. That's your body, your mind, letting you know that something happened to you that has stayed with you, that has gone into your psyche. And as Bessel van der Kolk talks about it, has also entered your body on a cellular level. There were studies done with people who had dealt with Oklahoma City bombing, where Timothy McVeigh had brought in explosives. There was a huge, awful bombing that some of you might remember. And they noticed that the people who, right afterwards, who had talked to therapists, who had had a chance to talk about what this experience was like for them, were helped very much by being able to do that. And the people who were helped even more were the people who could not only talk about it, but had someone holding their hand while they were talking, or had someone putting their arm around their shoulder, of course, with their consent, or the people who had gone for massages, who had mm, decided to get out some of their fear or their anger by doing something physical, uh, like running or kickboxing. The people who had been able to respond, not only to themselves emotionally, but physiologically, were able to be helped in a more kind of complete way, as they put it. So it's something to think about. And it's something to think about because it shows that there is help for this. There are different modalities that can be used, usually a combination of different modalities. And never, ever, ever in this mix should there be any kind of self-criticism. Because if you criticize yourself for being weak on top of being traumatized, then you just either re-traumatize yourself or you keep yourself from getting the help that you need, which maintains the traumatic impact within your system. So be smart, but also be kind and be forgiving and understand that when you are suddenly having a panic attack and you don't know why, find out why. There's a reason and there is help for it. You shouldn't have to deal with nightmares for the rest of your life. You shouldn't have to deal with the fact that there are certain kinds of people or certain subjects that you have to avoid for the rest of your life. Pam, to her great credit, can now talk about these experiences 
and I'm sure it makes an impact on her. But she's at a place where she's capable of saying it out loud. And what a gift that is for us that she's at that place so that she can help people know not only about what can happen in some of these places, but that you can survive it and then get brave enough to actually talk about it so that they don't keep getting away with it by staying in the shadows. Groups like this, events like this, last, keep going, keep having strength because people stay silent, because they can exist within the shadows. And part of the reason that I wanted to start this show was to take these things, these events, these people, these groups out of the shadows and shine a light directly on them. Thank you, Pam, so much. And we all wish you well. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.